Trinity, Part 1, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 1. The term Trinity. The term Trinity is not a biblical term, and we are not using biblical language when we define what is expressed by it as the doctrine that there is one only and true God, but in the unity of the Godhead there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance but distinct in subsistence. A doctrine so defined can be spoken of as a biblical doctrine only on the principle that the sense of Scripture is Scripture and the definition of a biblical doctrine in such unbiblical language can be justified only on the principle that it is better to preserve the truth of scripture than the words of scripture the doctrine of the trinity lies in scripture in solution when it is crystallized from its solvent it does not cease to be scriptural but only comes into clearer view or to speak without figure the doctrine of the trinity is given to us in scripture not in formulated definition but in fragmentary allusions when we assemble the disjecta membra into their organic unity we are not passing from scripture but entering more thoroughly into the meaning of scripture we may state the doctrine in technical terms supplied by philosophical reflection but the doctrine stated is a genuinely scriptural doctrine two purely a revealed doctrine in point of fact, the doctrine of the Trinity is purely a revealed doctrine, that is to say, it embodies a truth which has never been discovered, and is indiscoverable by natural reason. With all his searching, man has not been able to find out for himself the deepest things of God. Accordingly, ethnic thought has never attained a Trinitarian conception of God, nor does any ethnic religion present in its representations of the divine being any analogy to the doctrine of the Trinity triads of divinities no doubt occur in nearly all polytheistic religions formed under very various influences sometimes as in the egypt triad of osiris isis and horus it is the analogy of the human family with its father mother and son which lies at their basis sometimes they are the effect of mere syncretism three deities worshipped in different localities being brought together in the common worship of all sometimes as in the hindu triad of brahma vishnu and shiva they represent the cyclic movement of a pantheistic evolution and symbolize the three stages of being becoming and dissolution sometimes they are the result apparently of nothing more than an odd human tendency to speak in threes which has given the number three widespread standing as a sacred number so h usner it is no more than was to be anticipated that one or another of these triads should now and again be pointed to as the replica or even the original of the christian doctrine of the trinity gladstone found the trinity in the homeric mythology the trident of poseidon being its symbol hegel very naturally found it in the hindu timuruti which indeed is very like his pantheizing notion of what the trinity is others have perceived it in the buddhist triratna söderblum or despite their crass dualism in some speculations of parsiism or more frequently in the notional triad of platonism while jules martin is quite sure that it is present in philo's neo-stoical doctrine of the powers especially when applied to the explanation of abraham's three visitors of late years eyes have been turned rather to babylonia and h Tsaman, finds a possible forerunner of the trinity in a father son and intercessor which he discovers in its mythology it should be needless to say that none of these triads has the slightest resemblance to the christian doctrine of the trinity 
the christian doctrine of the trinity embodies much more than the notion of threeness and beyond their threeness these triads have nothing in common with it three no rational proof of it as the doctrine of the trinity is indiscoverable by reason so it is incapable of proof from reason there are no analogies to it in nature not even in the spiritual nature of man who is made in the image of god in his trinitarian mode of being god is unique and as there is nothing in the universe like him in this respect so there is nothing which can help us to comprehend him many attempts have nevertheless been made to construct a rational proof of the trinity of the godhead among these there are two which are particularly attractive and have therefore been put forward again and again by speculative thinkers through all the christian ages these are derived from the implications in the one case of self-consciousness in the other of love both self-consciousness and love it is said demand for their very existence an object over against which the self stands as subject if we conceive of god as self-conscious and loving therefore we cannot help conceiving of him as embracing in his unity some form of plurality from this general position both arguments have been elaborated however by various thinkers in very varied forms the former of them for example is developed by a great seventeenth-century theologian bartholomew keckerman sixteen fourteen as follows god is self-conscious thought and god's thought must have a perfect object existing eternally before it this object to be perfect must be itself god and as god is one this object which is god must be the god that is one it is essentially the same argument which is popularized in a famous paragraph section seventy three of lessing's the education of the human race must not god have an absolutely perfect representation of himself that is a representation in which everything that is in him is found and would everything that is in god be found in this representation if his necessary reality were not found in it if everything everything without exception that is in god is to be found in this representation it cannot therefore remain a mere empty image but must be an actual duplication of god it is obvious that arguments like this prove too much if god's representation of himself to be perfect must possess the same kind of reality that he himself possesses it does not seem easy to deny that his representations of everything else must possess objective reality and this would be as much as to say that the eternal objective co-existence of all that god can conceive is given in the very idea of god and that is open pantheism the logical flaw lies in including in the perfection of a representation qualities which are not proper to representations however perfect a perfect representation must of course have all the reality proper to a representation but objective reality is so little proper to a representation that a representation acquiring it would cease to be a representation this fatal flaw is not transcended but only covered up when the argument is compressed as it is in most of its modern presentations in effect to the mere assertion that the condition of self-consciousness is a real distinction between the thinking subject and the thought object which in god's case would be between the subject ego and the object ego why however we should deny to god the power of self-contemplation enjoyed by every finite spirit save at the cost of the distinct hypostatizing of the contemplant and the contemplated self it is hard to understand nor is it always clear that what we get is a distinct hypostatization rather than a distinct substantializing of the contemplant and contemplated ego not two persons in the godhead so much as two gods the discovery of the 
third hypostasis, the Holy Spirit, remains, meanwhile, to all these attempts rationally to construct a trinity in the divine being, a standing puzzle which finds only a very artificial solution. The case is much the same with the argument derived from the nature of love. Our sympathies go out to that old Valentinian writer, possibly it was Valentinus himself, who reasoned, perhaps he was the first so to reason, that God is all love, but love is not love unless there be an object of love. And they go out more richly still to Augustine, when seeking a basis not for a theory of emanations, but for the doctrine of the Trinity, he analyzes this love which God is into the triple implication of the lover, the loved, and the love itself, and sees in this trinity of love an analogue of the triune God. It requires, however, only that the argument thus broadly suggested should be developed into its details for its artificiality to become apparent. Richard of St. Victor works it out as follows. It belongs to the nature of amor that it should turn to another as caritas. This other, in God's case, cannot be the world, since such love of the world would be inordinate. It can only be a person, and a person who is God's equal in eternity, power, and wisdom. Since, however, there cannot be two divine substances, these two divine persons must form one and the same substance. The best love cannot, however, confine itself to these two persons. It must become condelictio, by the desire that a third should be equally loved as they love one another. Thus love, when perfectly conceived, leads necessarily to the Trinity, and since God is all he can be, this Trinity must be real. Modern writers, Sartorius, Schöberlein, J. Müller, Liebner, most lately R. H. Grützmacher, do not seem to have essentially improved upon such a statement as this. And after all is said, it could not appear clear that God's own all-perfect being could not supply a satisfying object of his all-perfect love to say that in its very nature love is self-communicative and therefore implies an object other than self seems an abuse of figurative language perhaps the ontological proof of the trinity is nowhere more attractively put than by jonathan edwards the peculiarity of this presentation of it lies in an attempt to add plausibility to it by a doctrine of the nature of spiritual ideas or ideas of spiritual things such as thought love fear in general Ideas of such things, he urges, are just repetitions of them, so that he who has an idea of any act of love, fear, anger, or any other act or motion of the mind, simply so far repeats the motion in question, and if the idea be perfect and complete, the original motion of the mind is absolutely reduplicated. Edwards presses this so far that he is ready to contend that if a man could have an absolutely perfect idea of all that was in his mind at any past moment, he would really, to all intents and purposes, be over again what he was at that moment, and if he could perfectly contemplate all that is in his mind at any given moment, as it is, and at the same time that it is there in its first and direct existence, he would really be two at that time, he would be twice at once. The idea he has of himself would be himself again. This now is the case with the divine being. God's idea of himself is absolutely perfect, and therefore is an express and perfect image of him, exactly like him in every respect. But that which is the express perfect image of God, and in every respect like him, is God, to all intents and purposes, because there is nothing wanting. There is nothing in the deity that renders it the deity, but what has something exactly answering to it in this image, which will therefore also render that the deity. 
the second person of the trinity being thus attained the argument advances the godhead being thus begotten of god's loving having an idea of himself and showing forth in a distinct subsistence or person in that idea there proceeds a most pure act and an infinitely holy and sacred energy arises between the father and the son in mutually loving and delighting in each other the deity becomes all act the divine essence itself flows out and is as it were breathed forth in love and joy so that the godhead therein stands forth in yet another manner of subsistence and there proceeds the third person of the trinity the holy spirit viz the deity in act for there is no other act but the act of the will the inconclusiveness of the reasoning lies on the surface the mind does not consist in its states and the repetition of its states would not therefore duplicate or triplicate it if it did we should have a plurality of beings not of persons in one being neither god's perfect idea of himself nor his perfect love of himself reproduces himself he differs from his idea and his love of himself precisely by that which distinguishes his being from his acts when it is said then that there is nothing in the deity which renders it the deity but what has something answering to it in its image of itself it is enough to respond except the deity itself what is wanting to the image to make it a second deity is just objective reality four supported by reason inconclusive as all such reasoning is however considered as rational demonstration of the reality of the trinity it is very far from possessing no value it carries home to us in a very suggestive way the superiority of the trinitarian conception of god to the conception of him as an abstract monad and thus brings important rational support to the doctrine of the trinity when once that doctrine has been given us by revelation if it is not quite possible to say that we cannot conceive of god as eternal self-consciousness and eternal love without conceiving him as a trinity it does seem quite necessary to say that when we conceive him as a trinity new fullness richness force are given to our conception of him as a self-conscious loving being and therefore we conceive him more adequately than as a monad and no one who has ever once conceived him as a trinity can ever again satisfy himself with a monadistic conception of god reason thus not only performs the important negative service to faith in the trinity of showing the self-consistency of the doctrine and its consistency with other known truth but brings this positive rational support to it of discovering in it the only adequate conception of god as self-conscious spirit and living love difficult therefore as the idea of the trinity in itself is it does not come to us as an added burden upon our intelligence it brings us rather the solution of the deepest and most persistent difficulties in our conception of god as infinite moral being and illuminates enriches and elevates all our thought of god it has accordingly become a commonplace to say that christian theism is the only stable theism that is as much as to say that theism requires the enriching conception of the trinity to give it a permanent hold upon the human mind the mind finds it difficult to rest in the idea of an abstract unity for its god and that the human heart cries out for the living god in whose being there is that fullness of life for which the conception of the trinity alone provides five not clearly revealed in the old testament so strongly is it felt in wide circles that a trinitarian conception is essential to a worthy idea of god that there is abroad a deep-seated unwillingness to allow that god could ever have made himself known otherwise than as a trinity 
from this point of view it is inconceivable that the old testament revelation should know nothing of the trinity accordingly i a donna for example reasons thus if however and this is the faith of universal christendom a living idea of god must be thought in some way after a trinitarian fashion it must be antecedently probable that traces of the trinity cannot be lacking in the old testament since its idea of god is a living or historical one whether there really exist traces of the idea of the trinity in the old testament however is a nice question certainly we cannot speak broadly of the revelation of the doctrine of the trinity in the old testament it is a plain matter of fact that none who have depended on the revelation embodied in the old testament alone have ever attained to the doctrine of the trinity it is another question however whether there may not exist in the pages of the old testament turns of expression or records of occurrences in which one already acquainted with the doctrine of the trinity may fairly see indications of an underlying implication of it the older writers discovered intimations of the trinity and such phenomena as the plural form of the divine name elohim the occasional employment with reference to god of plural pronouns let us make man in our image genesis one twenty six three twenty two eleven seven isaiah six eight or of plural verbs genesis twenty thirteen thirty five seven certain repetitions of the name of god which seem to distinguish between god and god genesis nineteen twenty seven psalm forty five six and seven one hundred and ten one hosea one seven threefold liturgical formulas deuteronomy sixteen four numbers six twenty four to twenty six isaiah six three a certain tendency to hypostatize the conception of wisdom proverbs eight and especially the remarkable phenomena connected with the appearances of the angel of jehovah genesis sixteen two to thirteen twenty two eleven and sixteen thirty one eleven and thirteen forty eight fifteen and sixteen exodus three two four and five judges thirteen twenty to twenty two the tendency of more recent authors is to appeal not so much to specific texts of the old testament as to the very organism of revelation in the old testament in which there is perceived an underlying suggestion that all things owe their existence and persistence to a threefold cause both with reference to the first creation and more plainly with reference to the second creation passages like psalm thirty three six isaiah sixty one one sixty three nine to twelve haggai two five and six in which god and his word and his spirit are brought together co-causes of effects are adduced a tendency is pointed out to hypostatize the word of god on the one hand for example genesis one three psalm thirty three six one hundred and seven twenty one hundred nineteen eighty seven one hundred and forty seven fifteen to eighteen isaiah fifty five eleven and especially in ezekiel and the later prophets the spirit of god on the other for example genesis one two isaiah forty eight sixteen sixty three ten ezekiel two two eight three zechariah seven twelve suggestions in isaiah for instance seven fourteen nine six of the deity of the messiah are appealed to and if the occasional occurrence of plural verbs and pronouns referring to god and the plural form of the name elohim are not insisted upon as in themselves evidence for a multiplicity in the godhead yet a certain weight is lent them as witnesses that the god of revelation is no abstract unity but the living true god who in the fullness of his life embraces the highest variety Bavink. the upshot of it all is that it is very generally felt that somehow in the old testament development of the idea of god there is a suggestion that the deity is not a simple monad 
and that thus a preparation is made for the revelation of the trinity yet to come it would seem clear that we must recognize in the old testament doctrine of the revelation of god to his revelation by the creative word and the spirit at least the germ of the distinctions in the godhead afterward made fully known in the christian revelation and we can scarcely stop there after all is said in the light of the later revelation the trinitarian interpretation remains the most natural one of the phenomena which the older writers frankly interpreted as intimations of the trinity especially of those connected with the descriptions of the angel of jehovah no doubt but also even of such a form of expression as meets us in the let us make man in our image of genesis one twenty six for surely verse twenty seven and god created man in his own image does not encourage us to take the preceding verse as announcing that man was to be created in the image of the angels this is not an illegitimate reading of new testament ideas into the text of the old testament it is only reading the text of the old testament under the illumination of the new testament revelation the old testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted the introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but what was only dimly or even not at all perceived before the mystery of the trinity is not revealed in the old testament but the mystery of the trinity underlies the old testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view thus the old testament revelation of god is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it but only perfected extended and enlarged six prepared for in the old testament it is an old saying that what becomes patent in the new testament was latent in the old testament and it is important that the continuity of the revelation of god contained in the two testaments should not be overlooked or obscured if we find some difficulty in perceiving for ourselves in the old testament definite points of attachment for the revelation of the trinity we cannot help perceiving with great clearness in the new testament abundant evidence that its writers felt no incongruity whatever between their doctrine of the trinity and the old testament conception of god the new testament writers certainly were not conscious of being setters forth of strange gods to their own apprehension they worshipped and proclaimed just the god of israel and they laid no less stress than the old testament itself upon his unity john seventeen three one corinthians eight four one timothy two five they do not then place two new gods by the side of jehovah as alike with him to be served and worshipped they conceive jehovah as himself at once father son and spirit in presenting this one jehovah as father son and spirit they do not even betray any lurking feeling that they are making innovations without apparent misgiving they take over old testament passages and apply them to father son and spirit indifferently obviously they understand themselves and wish to be understood as setting forth in the father son and spirit just the one god that the god of the old testament revelation is and they are as far as possible from recognizing any breach between themselves and the fathers in presenting their enlarged conception of the divine being this may not amount to saying that they saw the doctrine of the trinity everywhere taught in the old testament it certainly amounts to saying that they saw the triune god whom they worshipped in the god of the old testament revelation and felt no incongruity in speaking of their triune god in the terms of the old testament revelation the god of the old testament was their god and their god was a trinity and their sense of the identity of the two was so complete that no question as to it was raised in their minds seven presupposed in the new testament the simplicity and assurance 
with which the New Testament writers speak of God as a trinity, have, however, a further implication. If they betray no sense of novelty in so speaking of him, this is undoubtedly in part because it was no longer a novelty so to speak of him. It is clear, in other words, that, as we read the New Testament, we are not witnessing the birth of a new conception of God. What we meet with in its pages is a firmly established conception of God, underlying and giving its tone to the whole fabric. It is not in a text here and there that the New Testament bears its testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity. The whole book is Trinitarian to the core. All its teaching is built on the assumption of the Trinity, and its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. It is with a view to the cursoriness of the allusions to it in the New Testament that it has been remarked that the doctrine of the Trinity is not so much heard as overheard in the statements of Scripture. It would be more exact to say that it is not so much inculcated as presupposed. The doctrine of the Trinity does not appear in the New Testament in the making, but as already made. It takes its place in its pages, as Gunke phrases it, with an air almost of complaint, already in full completeness, völlig fertig, leaving no trace of its growth. There is nothing more wonderful in the history of human thought, says Sanday, with his eye on the appearance of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, than the silent and imperceptible way in which this doctrine, to us so difficult, took its place without struggle and without controversy among accepted Christian truths. The explanation of this remarkable phenomenon is, however, simple. Our New Testament is not a record of the development of the doctrine, or of its assimilation. It everywhere presupposes the doctrine as the fixed possession of the Christian community, and the process by which it became the possession of the Christian community lies behind the New Testament. 8. Manifested in the Son and Spirit We cannot speak of the doctrine of the Trinity, therefore, if we study exactness of speech, as revealed in the New Testament, any more than we can speak of it as revealed in the Old Testament the old testament was written before its revelation the new testament after it the revelation itself was not made in a word but in deed it was made in the incarnation of god the son and the outpouring of god the holy spirit the relation of the two testaments to this revelation is in the one case that of preparation for it and in the other that of product of it the revelation itself is embodied just in christ and the holy spirit this is as much as to say that the revelation of the trinity was incidental to and the inevitable effect of the accomplishment of redemption it was in the coming of the son of god in the likeness of sinful flesh to offer himself a sacrifice for sin and in the coming of the holy spirit to convict the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment that the trinity of persons in the unity of the godhead was once for all revealed to men those who knew God the Father, who loved them and gave his own Son to die for them, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved them and delivered himself up, an offering and sacrifice for them, and the Spirit of grace, who loved them and dwelt within them, a power not themselves, making for righteousness, knew the triune God, and could not think or speak of God otherwise than as triune. The doctrine of the Trinity, in other words, is simply the modification wrought in the conception of the one only God by his complete revelation of himself in the redemptive process. It necessarily waited, therefore, upon the completion of the redemptive process for its revelation, and its revelation, as necessarily, lay complete in the redemptive process. From this central fact we may understand more fully several circumstances connected with the revelation of the Trinity to which allusion has been made. We may from it understand, for example, why the Trinity was not revealed in the Old Testament. 
it may carry us a little way to remark as it has been customary to remark since the time of gregory of nazianzus that it was the task of the old testament revelation to fix firmly in the minds and hearts of the people of god the great fundamental truth of the unity of the godhead and it would have been dangerous to speak to them of the plurality within this unity until this task had been fully accomplished the real reason for the delay in the revelation of the trinity however is grounded in the secular development of the redemptive purpose of god the times were not ripe for the revelation of the trinity in the unity of the godhead until the fullness of time had come for god to send forth his son unto redemption and his spirit unto sanctification the revelation in word must needs wait upon the revelation in fact to which it brings its necessary explanation no doubt but from which also it derives its own entire significance and value the revelation of a trinity in the divine unity as a mere abstract truth without relation to manifested fact and without significance to the development of the kingdom of god would have been foreign to the whole method of the divine procedure as it lies exposed to us in the pages of scripture here the outworking of the divine purpose supplies the fundamental principle to which all else even the progressive stages of revelation itself is subsidiary and advances in revelation are ever closely connected with the advancing accomplishment of the redemptive purpose we may understand also however from the same central fact why it is that the doctrine of the trinity lies in the new testament rather in the form of allusions than in express teaching why it is rather everywhere presupposed coming only here and there into incidental expression than formally inculcated it is because the revelation having been made in the actual occurrences of redemption was already the common property of all christian hearts in speaking and writing to one another christians therefore rather spoke out of their common trinitarian consciousness and reminded one another of their common fund of belief than instructed one another in what was already the common property of all we are to look for and we shall find in the new testament allusions to the trinity rather evidence of how the trinity believed in by all was conceived by the authoritative teachers of the church than formal attempts on their part by authoritative declarations to bring the church into the understanding that god is a trinity nine implied in the whole new testament the fundamental proof that god is a trinity is supplied thus by the fundamental revelation of the trinity in fact that is to say in the incarnation of god the son and the outpouring of god the holy spirit in a word jesus christ and the holy spirit are the fundamental proof of the doctrine of the trinity this is as much as to say that all the evidence of whatever kind and from whatever source derived that jesus christ is god manifested in the flesh and that the holy spirit is a divine person is just so much evidence for the doctrine of the trinity and that when we go to the new testament for evidence of the trinity we are to seek it not merely in the scattered allusions to the trinity as such numerous and instructive as they are but primarily in the whole mass of evidence which the new testament provides of the deity of christ and the divine personality of the holy spirit when we have said this we have said in effect that the whole mass of the new testament is evidence for the trinity for the new testament is saturated with evidence of the deity of christ and the divine personality of the holy spirit precisely what the new testament is is the documentation of the religion of the incarnate son and of the outboard spirit that is to say of the religion of the trinity and what we mean by the doctrine of the trinity is nothing but the formulation in exact language of the conception of god presupposed in the religion of the incarnate son and outboard spirit 
we may analyze this conception and adduce proof for every constituent element of it from the new testament declarations we may show that the new testament everywhere insists on the unity of the godhead that it constantly recognizes the father as god the son as god and the spirit as god and that it cursorily presents these three to us as distinct persons it is not necessary however to enlarge here on facts so obvious we may content ourselves with simply observing that to the new testament there is but one only living and true god but that to it jesus christ and the holy spirit are each god in the fullest sense of the term and yet father son and spirit stand over against each other as i and thou and he in this composite fact the new testament gives us the doctrine of the trinity for the doctrine of the trinity is but the statement in well-guarded language of this composite fact throughout the whole course of the many efforts to formulate the doctrine exactly which have followed one another during the entire history of the church indeed the principle which has ever determined the result has always been determination to do justice in conceiving the relations of god the father god the son and god the spirit on the one hand to the unity of god and on the other to the true deity of the son and spirit and their distinct personalities when we have said these three things then that there is but one god that the father and the son and the spirit is each god that the father and the son and the spirit is each a distinct person we have enunciated the doctrine of the trinity in its completeness that this doctrine underlies the whole new testament as its constant presupposition and determines everywhere its forms of expression is the primary fact to be noted we must not omit explicitly to note however that it now and again also as occasion arises for its incidental enunciation comes itself to expression in more or less completeness of statement the passages in which the three persons of the trinity are brought together are much more numerous than perhaps is generally supposed but it should be recognized that the formal collocation of the elements of the doctrine naturally is relatively rare in writings which are occasional in their origin and practical rather than doctrinal in their immediate purpose the three persons already come into view as divine persons in the annunciation of the birth of our lord the holy ghost shall come upon thee said the angel to mary and the power of the most high shall overshadow thee wherefore also the holy thing which is to be born shall be called the son of god luke one thirty five margin compare matthew one eighteen and following here the holy ghost is the active agent in the production of an effect which is also ascribed to the power of the most high and the child thus brought into the world is given the great designation of son of god the three persons are just as clearly brought before us in the account of matthew one eighteen and following though the allusions to them are dispersed through a longer stretch of narrative in the course of which the deity of the child is twice intimated verse twenty one it is he that shall save his people from their sins verse twenty three they shall call his name emmanuel which is being interpreted god with us in the baptismal scene which finds record by all the evangelists at the opening of jesus ministry matthew three sixteen and seventeen mark one ten and eleven luke three twenty one and twenty two john one thirty two to thirty four the three persons are thrown up to sight in a dramatic picture in which the deity of each is strongly emphasized from the open heavens the spirit descends in visible form and a voice came out of the heavens thou art my son the beloved in whom i am well pleased thus care seems to have been taken to make the advent of the son of god into the world the revelation also of the triune god that the minds of men might as smoothly as possible adjust themselves to the preconditions of the divine redemption which was in process of being wrought out ten conditions the whole teaching of jesus 
with this as a starting point the teaching of jesus is trinitarianly conditioned throughout he has much to say of god his father from whom as his son he is in some true sense distinct and with whom he is in some equally true sense one and he has much to say of the spirit who represents him as he represents the father and by whom he works as the father works by him it is not merely in the gospel of john that such representations occur in the teaching of jesus in the synoptics too jesus claims a sonship to god which is unique matthew eleven twenty seven twenty four thirty six mark thirteen thirty two luke ten twenty two in the following passages the title of son of god is attributed to him and accepted by him matthew four six eight twenty nine fourteen thirty three twenty seven forty forty three and fifty four mark three ten twelve six to eight fifteen thirty nine luke four forty one twenty two seventy compare john one thirty four and forty nine nine thirty five eleven twenty seven and which involves an absolute community between the two in knowledge say and power both matthew eleven twenty seven and luke ten twenty two record his great declaration that he knows the father and the father knows him with perfect mutual knowledge no one knoweth the son save the father neither doth any know the father save the son in the synoptics too jesus speaks of employing the spirit of god himself for the performance of his works as if the activities of god were at his disposal i by the spirit of god or as luke has it by the finger of god cast out demons matthew twelve twenty eight luke eleven twenty compare the promises of the spirit in mark thirteen eleven luke twelve twelve end of trinity part one by b b warfield